You pour your heart into your business, you give to your clients, and you take care of your family and your community. And you put off taking care of yourself. When you only focus on doing, you bottle up your emotions, which taxes your body and depletes your energy. You struggle to show up, to keep up, and to create results. My name is Dr. Mary Maduna Gross. About 10 years ago, I burned out of the only career I thought I'd ever have. I got divorced, and I was crushed with chronic illness and pain. Now I have a business that I love, a husband I can grow with, and my health is on track. Through the power of coaching, I have come to recognize the resilience and power I carry within my soul. You have this resilience and power as well. Welcome to Inflow with Soul, where we create the space for playful restoration. Space to pause, to play, and to connect with your soul. Because when you take care of you, your results will take care of themselves. Welcome back to another episode of In Flow with Soul. My name is Dr. Mary Maduna Gross, and today I'm here with Heather. Heather, help me with your last name. It's Rudalavage. Rudalavage. Heather Rudalavage. And I'm excited to hear uh, Heather's story today of her experience in entrepreneurship and then how she's helping women entrepreneurs. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Heather is an anti-diet, weight-neutral, registered dietitian, and certified intuitive eating counselor in the Philadelphia area. She is the founder of Intuitive Nutrition, and she has spent the last 12-plus years helping women achieve their health goals with compassion, empathy, and a dash of humor. She is married to her high school sweetheart and is mom to three teenagers. She enjoys spending time outdoors, knitting, and reading. She loves meeting new people and has traveled to 15 countries. She is currently about halfway through writing her first novel, so stay tuned. Heather, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So as we usually do on the show here, I'd like to hear about your entrepreneurial story. Where did you get started? Um, What was that kind of that kick in the pants that moved you from whatever you were doing into this crazy world of entrepreneurship? Sure. Um, I think like many entrepreneurs, my path was a little lengthy, right? Um, I I started out um, as a registered dietitian who was working in clinical. That's always what I assumed I would do. I really didn't think about um, private practice at, at all or being an entrepreneur at all while I was in school. And I just figured, you know, I was going to be uh, kind of a make-believe doctor and, and <laughs> vision of being in the hospital and, and being paged and feeling important. Um, but, uh, and I did that for a long time until I had my first child. And then I took some time away from uh, working, you know, in my career and was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, I think then when I had my third child and she was about uh, four or five years old, I really started thinking that it was time for me to kind of do something for myself. Um, and I and I really struggled and did a lot of soul searching at that time. Um, I was sort of between thinking, do I want to go back and be a traditional dietitian? And if I don't go back and do that soon, I'm going to kind of lose those skills. Um, or do I want to do something else? And I was really um, 
really delving into some of the spiritual world stuff at that time. Okay. I was getting in touch with spirit guides and reading auras and all that uh, fun stuff. But I, I knew that wasn't my true passion. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to start a business and I will be able to have like those flexible hours. I was privileged enough to have a husband that was kind of our primary uh, breadwinner at the time. So it wasn't like I was giving up this big salary to, to sure. start a business. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I figured, yeah, what the heck, I'll just sort of hang out a shingle. And so I Googled, I came up with the name of my business, which is Intuitive Nutrition. And I Googled that. And that's when the book Intuitive Eating popped up. And so this was around 2000 and. Uh, nine, maybe 2010. And the book was written in the 1990s, but I had never heard of it. Um, and I, I was so excited to read it. And I read it cover to cover. And I just was blown away, literally, that there were kind of other dietitians out there that sort of thought the same way I did. And they had written a book about it. And so I, I contacted the authors and, um, you know, talked to, uh, I think it was Evelyn. And uh, she was like, Oh, you can, you know, take the intuitive eating training. And I said, of course, that's what I want to do. And so became a certified intuitive eating counselor. And at that time, there was really only a handful of counselors. And okay. um, yeah, so I, 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 that's what I did. <laughs> that is quite a journey. So before we go <laughs> forward into more of this journey, can we go back a little bit? And back sure. to tell me a little bit about how you chose dietitian. Um, as your career? Oh my gosh, that's, um, <laughs> that's kind of a funny story because I, uh, my parents were kind of the type of parents that said you could be a teacher or a nurse. And so okay. I, <laughs> I, I knew I didn't want to be either of those. And um, so I entered Penn State and, uh, and that's, and that first year I, I started in nursing and had to take sort of intro to nutrition and psychology and family mm -hmm. studies. And that's really when I was, you know, kind of introduced to the idea of even a dietitian was a thing. I didn't even know it was a thing before that. And so I thought, oh, this is pretty cool because I can actually kind of help people before they get sick, you know, whereas nursing, I sort of saw as I'm helping people after they got sick. Sure. Um, I don't know if a nurse would agree with me if that's what they do, but that's how I saw it at the time. And I really liked the psychology of eating. I really liked kind of why people eat the way they do. Okay. So you were interested in helping people before they got sick and particularly in eating um, yeah. and digging into why they're eating, not just what they're eating or how much right. they're eating. Right. Yeah. And I know many, many dietitians who got into the field because they had an eating disorder or were like in love with cooking and food. And honestly, those were neither of my things. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I really just like the idea of kind of helping people um, stay healthy. Yeah. Did this connect to any other experience that you had about being healthy or staying healthy? Because again, <laughs> it sounds like this was kind of like a, this was an option that was out in left field and you didn't even know about it until you got to college. Yeah, it was such a left field option. Um, I don't remember where I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But um, I think the idea of it, like, oh, it was just kind of, I would have like that hospital idea of like working in a hospital and um, 
that was exciting to me. I don't know. Maybe I was watching too much ER at the time or whatever. Right. <laughs> General <laughs> Hospital. I don't know. I had maybe a glorified idea of what that looked like and, um, you know, the white coat and all that. And so I thought that seemed kind of cool. And um, I don't know. And I didn't realize at the time, you know, it's, it's, it's a popular career for women. I think it's changing now, but at the time it was probably 90% women, you know, in, in the field. Interesting. I, I never even thought about that, but I was, I'm thinking about nutritionists that I know they do happen to all be women. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them. But you're saying that's changing now. I think it's changing. And the, I think the other thing that's sort of uh, slowly changing as well is like, it definitely used to be a sort of white woman career, and now yeah. um, it's diversifying, which is is really nice to see as Excellent. well. Excellent. Okay, so you're you become a dietitian to help people stay healthy, and you really are kind of interested in the whole psychology interaction with the habit of eating. Right. You decide to start this business. Right. You find right. this book. Right. Into it, it lands in your lap. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you follow up jumped, on that. Yeah. It jumped into my lap. And I think, so I read the book cover to cover. And I think what was really so interesting to me, uh, it really, the way that I saw it was, it really was about why people are are kind of eating the way that they do. And I was never much of a dieter because honestly, I had what I call thin privilege. I was in a small body and I didn't work to achieve that. It just, it just genetically, I was in a small body, but after I had my three children, um, I gained a little bit of weight with each pregnancy. And then my weight just kind of kept, uh, climbing, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a whole lot, but it was a little bit. And so I was left at that time, um, thinking clearly I'm doing something wrong because I used to be thin and now Mm -hmm. I'm not. And so when I read intuitive eating, it really explained like, nope, it's not really about that per se. It's really kind of, um, you know, kind of, you know, it's not something that you're doing per se, but it's really tuning into your body and listening to your body. And I think at that time, um, you know, with, with a, being a stay at home mom and raising three kids, I, I wasn't really being super mindful. I wasn't really tuning into my body. I was kind of catch as catch can sometimes with eating. And, um, I think self-care was in the tubes. Yeah, <laughs> I sure. Was not, you know, making any time for self-care or exercise or anything like that. And so I thought, wow, like this is, this is kind of the key. It really, what stood out to me was a little bit of that self-care, but really just, um, you know, kind of seeing movement as something that could be enjoyable and, Mm -hmm. uh, tuning into your body and listening to your body and all those things just seemed really, um, spot on to me. So after reading the book and and maybe even during uh, your training um, for certification for this, what were some of those changes that you were making that aligned with this philosophy? So I think in the early days of um, starting a business, and fortunately at that time, I wasn't seeing a whole lot of, of you know, clients yet, but I think I had one foot in traditional dietetics, which was, you know, people came to me because they wanted to lose weight. 
And I had been trained to kind of help make people smaller. That was pretty much what dietitian school was. And I still had one foot in, you know, of course, the intuitive eating part, which was like, no, it's actually not about the number on the scale, but it's about these sort of health behaviors. And so I, I tried to sort of straddle the, the, the fence yeah. a little bit for those first few years. And then I think the health at every size idea really kind of came into its own at that time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I started to see it as more like this holistic idea of like, oh, it's really about these health behaviors. And so for me, that meant, um, you know, making self-care a priority and movement a priority and all all of those things. And really, honestly, I had to decouple movement from self-care because um, I was not someone who really enjoyed particularly going to the gym. I thought it was like, I saw it as a should for sure. Sure. Um, I was never the athlete really growing up. I was the kid with the book um, (laughs) and in the marching band and all that fun stuff. (laughs) Inside activities, right? Um, But um, yeah, and so I think... I, I used to think, oh yeah, um, if I go to the gym, that's self-care, but it took a couple years of coaching too, to kind of realize, no, actually you could have self-care that's not also in the pursuit of being smaller. And that okay. was really mind blowing um, to me too. So I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so then you decouple self-care from the gym um, do you continue, how do you continue then your movement commitment? Yeah. So, um, at that time it really was like, oh, so I don't have to be a runner, you know, like it doesn't have to be this thing that's this should, you know, I think mm-hmm. at that time and it's still popular now too, but you know, everyone had like the marathon sticker on their bumper car. And I was like, oh, I should run a marathon. And then I was thinking like, no, I really don't like running all that much. So, um, so for me, that kind of became like yoga instead, um, and kind of got into like the yoga thing. And sometimes it's just walking in nature. Like, that's what I like to do. Um, so yeah. So you found a way to keep moving without having the shoulds of a gym. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I think then the other part of self-care was, um, just starting really small because I, I kind of joke now with my, my clients, cause I'm always talking about self-care with clients. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I tell people I'm a recovering mother Teresa because I used to, <laughs> you know, I honestly, I used to think that self-care meant I was being selfish. I, I remember right. the word indulgent actually coming up a lot of time um, with, with, you know, my therapist or like a coach. And um, I'm like, I just feel so indulgent. And I think I somehow put it like the, as, as humans do, right. I put it in these extremes, like either like, Oh, I'm getting like manicures every day or I'm mother Teresa. And, you know, um, and I, and, <laughs> and they, I had to realize that like, it doesn't have to look like either of those. There's like a really big gray area in the middle. It could look like, you know, just kind of browsing through home goods, or it could be painting or writing or reading, or, you know, just being out in nature, you know, meditating, all of those things could be self-care. And I had to start really small. Um, I had to start at like five minutes a day. Okay. And, um, 
And the other thing, the other, so to make space for, even for that, I had to um, sort of begin to delegate some of the things that I had always done for my family. Right. So yeah, I was the, you know, primary laundress and chef and shopper mm-hmm. and <laughs> cleaner and all of that. And so um, I, you know, I think it, it was really a coach that pointed out, um, your kids are teenagers. They probably could start doing, you know, their, their laundry right. and really you're doing them a disservice by doing their laundry for them because they're never going to learn how to do it on their own. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So we, so, you know, delegated some, some laundry responsibilities. Um, I was always sort of the, the primary, um, you know, I, I made dinner every night for my family. And so I did talk to my husband and sort of say, like, I think if I make another dinner, I'm, I might lose my mind. Um, and so he, he, um, sort of agreed to make dinner one night a week and, um, and we talked about him maybe taking up some of the the grocery shopping, but, uh, sadly that did not take, (laughs) it hasn't stuck yet. That has not (laughs) stuck, but that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. But yeah, I, I mean, really, you know, um, just a few years ago is when my business started to take off. And I, I just, I was, I was a rocket towards burnout and I, I had to do something different because I just couldn't, couldn't do any, couldn't juggle any more balls. Right. So would you say that was one of your biggest challenges as an entrepreneur is, is that self-care and and then carving out the time and, and delegating and asking for help? Was that your biggest challenge or was there anything else? Yeah, I think that was, um, that was like a big personal challenge uh, to, to sort of delegate within my family and ask for help. I think professionally, a big challenge was, it was kind of like knowing when to hire help and when to kind of put that money out. Um, because if you're doing everything yourself, you're like, oh, well, I'm not putting any money. Like I had, you know, when I first started, I had like zero overhead. Like I would right. meet people in Starbucks. I didn't even have an office. <laughs> so, sure. Um, and so, yeah. But then I think too, it was always like I had one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas. I was always thinking like, oh, I want more clients, but not too many clients. Um, okay. Because that would take away from my family. And so, but I, and then somebody said to me, and this was really kind of a mean thing to say when I think back on it, but I maybe did give me the kick in the pants that I needed. I was kind of telling another dietitian about my business and she said, oh, so you have a hobby. And I was so offended, but I, I think what she said is maybe a little bit true because I did have one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake and really was treating it like a little bit like a hobby and and not a business. It's interesting because oftentimes I hear that, right? Especially for as small businesses are launching. Um, Is this a business? Is this a hobby, right? Is this my side gig, something I'm doing on my, you know, just for fun or, Am I all in on this? What is your definition? Of being all in, you mean? Um, Of being a hobby versus a business. Oh, oh, okay. Um, Well, yeah, I um, I think I had a little bit of fear of if I really said this is a business and then I failed, 
that, you know, I had this story that I told myself of all these imaginary people just laughing and saying, see, we knew she wasn't going to be able to do it. But that truly was a story I was probably telling myself. So there was a little bit of a fear of that. There was a little bit of a fear of, um, you know, a six, like, what does it mean to be a successful woman business owner? Like, uh, I think I grew up with some very traditional patriarchal type views of what, you know, women entrepreneurs look like, and it was not a positive. Um, Well, just going back to your two options, right? Your two options (laughs) were to teach her to be a nurse. There's entrepreneurship is nowhere near those two. No. And it, and it's, and it's not, it wasn't like, oh, you could be a doctor or a professor, you know? Right. It it was not. And um, uh, yeah. So I, I definitely had so those those fears um, for sure. And so I think as a hobby, you're maybe not really in it to make money. You're just kind of doing it for something to do. And it doesn't mean that like even now, I don't know that money is my primary driver, um, mm-hmm. but it sure is nice to, to make money. <laughs> sure it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also see it as a way like, okay, when, when I make money, I can hire other small businesses um, and and usually pick, you know, women-owned businesses as well. And so that's been helpful for me to be okay with that too, is like, but think of all the women that not only do I help that are clients, um, but that I'm able to support all these other businesses, whether that be a coach or like an Instagram course or, you know, a, a health at every size course or continuing ed or anything like that. Um, I've been able to help a lot of other entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And and I love that you bring this topic up. It doesn't come up often enough um, <laughs> because I think that there is for a lot of us that um, there's some underlining belief that I can't ask for money for what I'm doing. Right. And I don't yeah. know where that comes from. I don't even know if we need to know where that comes from, but it, yeah. but it's present for a lot of us. And I think you make some really good points that me or any of us accepting payment for what we do gives us the opportunity to give to others. We, right. you know, again, that, that indulgence, right? How can yeah. I expect somebody to give something to me because I'm supposed to be the one always giving to everybody else? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely grew up with that uh, model to me. Um, and then, you know, just thinking too, like, exactly. Like as I grow, I'm going to be able to help that many more clients as well. And um, that is one thing I have found that there is a lot of need out there um, as far as, um, you know, nutrition and and intuitive eating. And so many women are struggling with their relationship with food and their bodies that I feel really blessed to help so many women. Right. You know, I had another podcast guest, um, who had said, if you're not solving a problem for someone, you have a hobby, not a business. Oh, So since we're talking about hobby versus business, what is the problem that you solve for others through your business? Oh, wow. So, so, (laughs) so like I said, like when I first started, a lot of women came to me for, for weight loss. Um, And then I kind of did this funny thing where I tried to bring them over to the intuitive eating side. Um, but now intuitive eating has really kind of come into its own. Um, and so now I have a lot of women reaching out to me specifically because I do intuitive eating 
And what those women tend to be struggling with is, um, is really their, their weight and okay. also their relationship with food. And they tend to be, um, somebody who's been on every diet known to man, some sure. of my clients, um, it really breaks my heart, but some, some of my clients started on a diet at, at eight or nine years old. Yeah. Um, and so for those women here, they are as adults and they never had the opportunity to learn how to trust their bodies because when they were very young, adults would have stepped in, whether that was a pediatrician or a mom or a dad or a grandmother or whoever, um, kind of stepped in and said, well, we'll take, you know, we'll take control now and set up food rules. And of course, we live in this culture, which is so obsessed with body size and health. And um, we have this love-hate relationship with food. And so it can be really hard for someone in a larger body to sort of just move through the day. So Right. Um, yeah, yeah, having a larger, exactly. It's harder to move. And then there's also the, at least the story in our own heads of how others are seeing us. And sometimes it's a story and sometimes it's reality, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the sad thing is for a lot of women in larger bodies, it's, it's a reality. They have thousands of sort of what we call microaggressions, everything from the glance in the grocery cart, you know, kind of to macroaggressions, which is they maybe can't fit into a seat or, mm-hmm. um, you know, go, go to a physician for a cold and the physician talks about losing weight. And so I, I think um, I have so much compassion for, for that person in that larger body and realize, and and I think for so many of those women or, and men too, um, they really think it's their fault, that they've done sure. something to sort of cause this. And that, that really is not the case. Okay. So the, your, your prospects or your clients are coming to you, um, with this history, right. Of, of a, a struggle with their bodies and particularly in weight, what is your ideal outcome for your clients? So I think the ideal outcome, it's, it's, it's kind of multifaceted, right? So um, the, the, at the first session, we're going to talk a little bit about sleep and stress and movement. And of course, a little bit about how they're eating, but it's not often um, what they're eating, but sometimes it is the way that they're eating. Sometimes they're, they might be going all day and then sort of binging or overeating at night, or yeah. maybe they're not getting enough protein or they're following a super, you know, restrictive plan or, or alternating between a super restrictive plan and then periods of, of overeating. Um, so at the, so we, we're going to talk about all those things and, <laughs> um, and then they kind of pick what area they they think they want to focus on first and sometimes starting to make those little shifts. Like sometimes it's easier to like, say, I'm going to start getting more sleep. And then when they start getting more sleep, then maybe they have more energy during the day or they're like not relying on snacks for energy because they're getting more rest. Um, And so, and it's finding things like, I think it's meeting them where they're at, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that's, um, oh, I I can't do this movement because I have, you know, a bad knee. Okay, well, how about this? 
Mm -hmm. um, really that individual kind of treatment. Or if, if someone says, oh, like, you know, I'm allergic to seafood, well, then most of the meal plans kind of involve some sort of seafood. So then I can say, well, that's okay. You don't, you don't need to eat seafood. Like mm -hmm. we can do this. And so really the end result is that they're going to have better health outcomes, regardless of actually what happens to their weight. And I think that was a huge surprise for me because I also, like many of us, sort of attached health and weight. And what I've learned now is that they really don't always, you know, that's a lot of times there's correlation there, but not necessarily one causing the other. So, sure. Um, yeah. So I think, um, and if they can start to feel better in their body mm -hmm. and start to kind of get to a place of body respect, then the number on the scale becomes less important because they just feel better overall. Yeah. So one of your, the primary outcomes then is just overall feeling better, more at home in your body. Is that a good, good way yeah, to describe it? Yeah, more at home in your body and also making choices that, that you're confident about. So I think we have so many food rules, right? And part of intuitive eating, um, I think there's like a misconception with intuitive eating that it's like, oh, so we just eat whatever we want, whenever right, we right. want. <laughs> and I think that's not intuitive eating. That's like definitely a misunderstanding, but it's this really attunement of like your body, what feels good in your body, um, but also is pleasurable. So for instance, like I, I recently developed sort of an allergy to dairy, I love dairy, but dairy no longer loves me. Yeah. Um, and, and so I have had to learn to sort of navigate that, right? I know that I can eat one slice of cheese on a sandwich and I'll be okay. But if I eat two pieces of pizza, um, I better be planning on staying home for the evening <laughs> because, because that won't be too fun. So I've kind of had to learn that. So it's not, you know, even though I really do enjoy pizza, I don't always enjoy the after effects of sure. pizza for, for me personally. So I think when we can kind of get rid of some of the food rules of like, oh, I'm never allowed to eat birthday cake, right? right. When we kind of get rid of that rule, it allows us to then eat birthday cake in a way that we're really tuned into the birthday cake. And then we can decide, do I even like birthday cake? Or maybe I only like homemade birthday cake. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't like the birthday cake from the grocery store, um, you know, or maybe I'm okay with one slice, but if we're eating it in secret, because we don't really want to be eating the birthday cake, right, we're afraid right. to be eating their birthday cake, then we're up in our, we're in our minds, right? We're, we're right. eating the cake, but we're not really tasting it because it's like, oh my gosh, why am I eating this cake? I can't believe I'm eating this cake, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then you're sort of telling your brain, that's it. As of Monday, we're never having birthday cake again. We're going to buckle down. And, and of course, we live in a world with birthday cake. <laughs> right, right. And so, somewhat of an oppositional streak in there when we're told, no, we can't and never. Yes, right, exactly. And that's where, where we get back to, um, I mean, that's the incredible thing. So we're all sort of born intuitive eaters. Like if we think about a time where we've maybe fed an infant, right? Like whether it's the breast or the bottle, if the, if that infant is full, they're going to be turning their head away. Like you literally right. can't force feed them. Right. Um, or like 
a good example is a toddler. Like maybe you make your toddler a lunch, right? And you make them a half of a sandwich and some grapes and a cookie. And they might eat the sandwich and some grapes and take one bite of the cookie and run off. As adults, we almost never take one bite of a cookie, even if it's a lousy cookie. <laughs> right, right. And again, one of the rules, the the empty plate rule. Yes, right. Right. Yeah, you got to a- clean your plate. That's a big one that we tackle together with uh, with my clients for sure. And so, but when they begin to like say, you know what, I could have a cookie in a few hours if I want, <laughs> then I don't need to eat the cookie right now if my body has said like, I'm satisfied. Okay. Yeah. So by sort of legalizing food, it sort of takes that forbidden fruit idea off the plate, you know, like. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. So I'm still wrapping my head around this outcome, this outcome of being at home in our bodies. And as I think about that, I just, I, more rules just keep popping up about, you know, <laughs> what it, all the movement rules, all the eating rules, all the food rules, all the racial rules, you know, all of these rules. And so it sounds like, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like being at home in our body is learning to identify those rules that we've been living with and letting go of those that are no longer serving us mm-hmm. and then replacing those external rules with tuning into who to our own system and asking our system what do you need or want now yeah yeah i think you pretty much summed it up so in a nutshell intuitive eating is really is moving from a place of external cues, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's time to eat or the the plate is clean to internal cues in that like, okay, my, my belly is growling. What do I want? Mm -hmm. And then stopping when we're sort of satisfied or, you know, I think as, as humans too, again, if you think back to, to children, we don't need to tell children to move necessarily. They just kind of do. Yes. And I think we all have that, you know, part of us there. It's just sometimes covered up because, well, for so many reasons. And right. I think if we're if we're if somebody told us we had to run laps or we were the kid that was kind of picked last for gym class, then we can have uh, you know some negative thoughts about movement. Exactly. Right? Yeah, we can. It's kind of tr- almost it can be traumatizing. And so, for but sure. when we say like, hey, movement could be you know, the whole family is taking a hike on a Saturday mm-hmm. or the whole family is, is, you know, learning a new sport like karate or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it can really start to open it up a little bit. And it sounds like as we let go of all of the shoulds, we can also let go of the shame that comes with those shoulds when we haven't, we don't, we've judged ourselves as not living up to them. Oh yeah, that I mean that's a big piece of it too is is shame um because I think sometimes and and gosh this is such a deep topic I think we could talk about this on another <laughs> podcast but this idea of you know um so the the theory of this you know sort of patriarchal idea of keeping women in line right if yeah. women are sort of really focused on staying small we don't have a lot of energy to do bigger, more important work. Mm. And so 
as you know, in in the 50s and the 60s, as women really began to move into the workforce, that's also when we start to see a pretty big emphasis on keeping women small. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's really deep, right? That's like, whoa. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah, and like, I mean, what I've been learning more about recently is this idea of of objectification, right? As women, because we are objectified, we learn to objectify each other. I can't believe she's wearing that. Right. We objectify ourselves. Yeah. That's a whole lot wrapped up. Yeah, I hope hope your audience still has their their head together. (laughs) Yeah, no, you are sharing a lot of really interesting insights. It is. So you had mentioned earlier that a lot of your clients have this, a history of, can I say, a broken relationship with their body? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, broken relationship, you know, poor relationship with food. Um, worried about having food in the house or find grocery store shopping overwhelming, like so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you, ha- do you ever work with younger women or, or girls? So I do work with some um, younger girls. Um, right now, most of those girls are, um, have, have an eating disorder or, or okay. are recovering from an eating disorder. So um, there's something about COVID that um, sort of brought up every eating disorder kind of um, crumb that there was. And uh, eating disorders right now in this, um, you know, in this world are just off the charts. Um, and that's true for adults too, but particularly teenagers. And, um, you know, eating disorders can look like a lot of different things. It, it can look like what we think of as this, you know, sort of emaciated white girl, um, but it it can also look like someone in a larger body that's a chronic dieter or binging and purging, or um, is just really struggling in a lot of other ways too. And, and that's a concept that I didn't, didn't understand until recently either. Is that like an eating disorder? You can, you can be in a large body and have an eating disorder. Okay. So what are some of the maybe mindset beliefs that you would like to, if you could uh, automatically install in a younger woman about her body and about eating, what would that be? Mindset beliefs. Um, Oh gosh. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think with young women, they can get on board with the social justice piece of like the BMI being racist and with, you know, the BMI was really, it was created in, I believe the 1800s and it was, you know, really never meant to be an indicator of health. And it was just based on white European men. And so we, they can kind of get on board with that. And we can kind of decouple weight and health, again, that sort of frees up the ability to now like, let's focus on these sort of health behaviors instead of the number on the scale, because the number on the scale is so hard to budge. (laughs) Right. Because our weight actually isn't as easily manipulated as we are led to believe, right? Our bodies, we kind of have this thing called a set point and the set point sort of works a little bit like a thermostat. So we can 
sort of manipulate that um, thermostat and lose some weight, but our brain is paying really close attention. And so it'll let us lose some weight, but then uh, it's probably going to kick in and that thermostat's going to turn up the heat, right? Right. And that's going to show up as like, you're thinking about food all the time, food tastes better, your metabolism is already like slowed down. And so now when you do start to eat more, you're, you know, kind of going to gain that weight back, um, all, all those things. And so I think when we can decouple that and sort of say like, okay, look, regardless of what the number on the scale says, let me just focus on feeling good in my body and moving my body and, you know, getting good sleep and getting some stress management and choosing foods that make me feel good. Um, right. Some of those foods are going to nourish our soul and some of those foods are going to nourish our body. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it sounds like for young, for young women, it sounds like you would suggest shifting your attention from the scale or what size you're wearing to how am I tuning into my body? How am I moving it? Because it needs to move. How am I feeding it? It needs fuel. Mm -hmm. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I, you know, taking care of my body? Is that true? Yeah. 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 All of those things I think are true. And I think some of that is too, like questioning what we know to be true, right? So some of that is is unlearning diet culture. And maybe for those teens, it's unfollowing the sort of thinspiration um, kind of gurus that are out there um, and just realizing like, it's a little bit like changing your foot size, right? Like you could really want to be a size six shoe because those are the always the ones that have such great sales, right? Right. (laughs) And there's always plenty of them. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're a size eight, you could squeeze into a size six, but it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to last long. Right. So what about, and this is for uh, young women or, or adults, um, what about like other health conditions? I'm thinking in particular thyroid, um, thyroid issues is a history in my family. When that is part of the conversation, how does that fit into this intuitive eating? Yeah. Th- so those are really difficult things. Um, so, you know, thyroid, of co- course, PCOS is a big one where there's a lot of emphasis on we'll just cut out carbs, we'll just lose weight. And yet it's extremely difficult for someone with PCOS to do those things. And so again, like, well, okay, well, what do we, what can we do? You know, what, how can we kind of take weight off the table and just manage what we can? And I think, you know, with type two diabetes, like this is another big misconception is like, I think we sometimes think, oh, type two diabetes is something that happens. It's like some sort of punishment for eating too much. And yet we know that people in small bodies can get type two diabetes. People in small bodies can, can die of a heart attack. And, and yet we have such trouble seeing it the other way that, you know, just because you're in a large body doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get diabetes. There's a huge genetic tie to Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. There is like, you know, we have genetics, which maybe determine about 50% of like our health. Right. And then we've got environment. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you're working with clients who may have some of these other conditions, whether it's diabetes or what's PCOS? 
So polycystic ovarian syndrome. So for women that have like irregular periods or tend to like put on weight very easily, particularly like college years, um, you know, may have trouble getting pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how, when clients come to you with these other conditions, does that change your course of action with them in any way? It actually really doesn't, but sometimes, but sometimes it is more unlearning because if it's somebody with type two diabetes, then we have to do a lot of unlearning there, you know, that this is not something you did to yourself. Um, But also knowing that, yeah, sure. Like if you are going to eat Swedish fish all day, your, your blood sugar numbers aren't going to look so good. Um, But again, movement, stress reduction, um, you know, and, and a balanced sort of variety in your diet, that's going to help your numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're so stressed out about not eating or eating the wrong things, or, you know, sometimes people with diabetes think, okay, so I can't have any carbs. And it's like, no, that's not not it either. Um, Yeah. So, mm, yeah. (laughs) This is really a fascinating conversation. And, and as we kind of tapped into a little bit earlier, it, it goes beyond just the plate right? Um, it goes beyond our eating habits and it and crosses over into our cultural conditioning. It really does. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I mean, just to get back to like what you're asking before with, with young girls. So if I see a girl that's, you know, um, maybe under the age of 12, and I'm really working with the parents. Um, right. And so these parents might have been told by the pediatrician, oh, like, you know, we really need to to watch little Susie, right? Um, so w- with those parents, it is just, I, I would kind of introduce them to like sort of the Ellen Satter method, which is really this, what she kind of calls this division of responsibility. So yes, as parents, you can be sort of responsible for the what of your okay. child's eating, but the child is responsible for everything else. And that's whether or not they're eating it at all and how much they're eating. And so I think sometimes the best way we can support like our child, if they're in a bigger weight, is to really give them that body autonomy. And that's true for our spouses and our friends and everyone else in our life too, is really giving them that autonomy. Well, that brings up a really good question. Um, How can we support our family members um, who may be in these bodies that they're not happy with yet, right? Because they're not working Mm -hmm. with you yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, how, how can we be a better family member for them? Yeah. I mean, in general, I think if it's an, if it's an adult, if it's a spouse, a partner something like that, um, again, like that body autonomy, like, so right. We're not going to offer help unless they specifically ask us for support. But I think, um, sometimes having a third party there can be helpful too. Like, right. And really just not talking about weight at all, right? (laughs) because that's almost never helpful, you know, talking about. And so really making that idea of talking about other people's weight, just sort of taboo, you know, like in this family, we don't talk about celebrities weight. We don't talk about the woman down the street. We don't talk about the woman in the grocery store, you know, like we just don't talk about weight. Um, because we, we, we can't determine someone's health by looking at them. Right. 
Um, and then I think too, like making space for that partner to pursue some health behaviors, whether that's self-care or stress reduction or finding an activity that you do together, you know, or looking for recipes that are, you know, sort of pleasurable, that taste pleasurable and also are, are good and, and nourishing so that we're not relying on takeout all the time. Yeah. So yeah. some of the common sense kind of common sense stuff, I know. And yeah. it's, it's tricky, right? Cause we are worried about like, again, it comes back to that tie to, to weight and, and health because we think we're coming from a place of compassion. And I tell this to my adults all the time too, like your parents only had the best intentions, right? But they were right. a little bit misguided. <laughs> of course. You know? Yeah. And that's what we are are here to do, right? Every generation is here to correct a little bit of what we received. Uh, and then the next generation is to correct a little bit of what we have imposed on them. And right. at some point, hopefully all the good stuff comes to the top. Yeah. I mean, it would be so great if that we, we didn't have to worry about our kids being teased because they're in a bigger body. Like that would be a beautiful thing if it was just like, you know, if it became, yes, I, I have brown hair and I'm also in a fat body. Mm-hmm. It just is. Right. right. Well, Heather, I really appreciate you sharing your insights. These are very unique. Um, I I talk to a lot of people and I've never heard anyone talk about eating the way that you have talked about it today. And so thank you so much for sharing this perspective. Of course. Yeah. I I hope that um, your listeners maybe took something away from it today. I'm sure they have. (laughs) Now, do you you, uh, provide services just locally or do you do uh, virtual sessions? Yeah, so right now I'm 100% virtual. Um, so within the nutrition field, like I'm licensed in PA. So it depends on where, what your state is that I may okay. or may not be able to see you. Um, but um, I also take insurance. So if you have something like Blue Cross or Aetna, one of those sort of like national type plans, um, and you live in a state that I'm allowed to to work with you, um, then it's pretty, pretty nice. It's a benefit that your insurance provides. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, so it's right now it's, it's one-on-one virtual. Okay. Um, and what that generally looks like is just very like individualized, just kind of talking about what's coming up for you and, mm-hmm. you know, where are your struggles and sort of walking through that. I really am like that accountability sort of partner by your side that can kind yeah. of say, yep, this is normal. Like this is what, <laughs> this is what happens. Um yeah. And beyond that, I'm, I'm, of course, I have a Facebook group, which is intuitive eaters who believe in health at every size. So your listeners can check that out. And on Instagram, um, I'm Hayes Philly RD, which is H-A-E-S Philly with a Y R-D. Wonderful. <laughs> Heather, thank you again for sharing your expertise with us and your time. I'm very grateful to you. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, this is Mary. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you are coming away feeling maybe a little inspired, maybe a little more informed, or maybe just rested. Most of all, I hope you're coming away feeling empowered. If you do, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. But most importantly, please pass along this sense of empowerment to your friends and to your networks. 
Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you.